my grandmother's favorite song, My Jesus, I Love Thee. So let's take a few favorites from you tonight, all right? Grab your book. Let's take maybe five favorites from the audience. Who's got? Second Peter chapter 3. And we are in session 8. Principles from Peter in the book of Second Peter. We've already covered First Peter. And now we're almost to the end of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 3 tonight. We're going to do our best to cover verses 1 through 7. Second Peter 3, 1 through 7. Let's read it first, then we'll go back and study it a little bit. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. We can see from this that some of the audience of the first epistle was brought out again in the second epistle. In both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, which basically just means doing whatever they want to do. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Let's take the phrase from verse number one, stir up your pure minds. And that'll be our topic tonight. Let's pray. Father, would you bless in our study now? I pray that you'd give us all clarity and illumination from the Holy Spirit, that we might dig deeper into your word and find what you'd have for us and be able as well to apply it in our lives. Once again, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we get right to this, this wording now in verse number one. He's going to stir up their pure minds. And you think of uh, this phraseology that, that Peter has used, stirring up and exercising. And he's, he's talking about what our involvement would be in our own actions as believers, in our own purity as believers. And now... He's saying that he's, he's stirring these things up in their mind. And you uh, are aware that there are things that from time to time have to be stirred up. Otherwise, they grow stagnant. And our faith is like that. If it's not stirred up, if it's not exercised, it becomes stagnant, it becomes lethargic, and we lose all of our spiritual muscle. And it's like this with our purity as well. And this word, pure, is interesting that we say this in your notes. The pure referred to in verse 1 means, if you look at the etymology of it, it means pure when examined by sunlight. That's what it means. Pure when examined by sunlight. I don't know if you've ever washed the windows at your house when it's dark. Or when you have some artificial light. And then you go by it on another day when the sun is shining brightly. Now, what do you see? 
impurities. And have you ever seen a sunbeam go through your room and seen a shelf that you thought looked pretty good and it just has dust all over it? And the, the sunbeams even themselves just pull those particles and you can see dust particles in the air because the sunlight is so bright that it shows the purity of what you actually can view. Now that's the type of purity that's talked about here. In the New Testament, this Greek word is also used as the English word clear, uh, the thought unmixed, genuine, sincere. So this is a type of purity that means many types of things in our language, but in the Greek it was, it was significant. And it was talking about this purity by sunlight, when examined by sunlight. Let's go back and just do a brief little study on this. Philippians 1.10. Let's just look at uh, maybe four or five verses that expose to us the type of purity that this refers to. Philippians 1.10. Here's one of the uses of it. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and, look at this one, without offense till the day of Christ. So this is one usage of this term. And it's looking at the, at the opposites here. You have excellent and you have without offense. And, and understanding what those things mean in that passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So you're going back a little bit further now. 1 Corinthians 5. This was a chapter where immorality was being exposed in the church at Corinth. And he talks in verse number 8. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this is the type of purity that's being referred to here. Um, leaven in the scripture was a sign or a symbol of sin. And so he's referring to a purity that has no leaven in it. It's sincere, it's true, all the way through the entire part of its being. Second Corinthians now, chapter 1. Yeah, we'll do two of them in Second Corinthians, then we'll move on back to Second Peter. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse number 12. For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you word. So godly sincerity. And it's not a, a human sincerity, but a godly sincerity. One that has been approved, one that's excellent, one that can be examined by sunlight. Chapter 2, verse number 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So you can see that many of the times we've, we've seen the word, in these instances it's been the sincerity, the genuineness, the clarity that this purity refers to. 
Now, if you go back into Peter, I want you to go back to 1 Peter for just a second. As we talk about a reference that Peter had made earlier to this. 1 Peter chapter 1. And look again at verse number 13 here. He said, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We say this in your notes. As Peter referenced in his first epistle, in 1 Peter 1.13, the mind must be exercised toward holiness. If the mind is not exercised toward holiness, then it always goes to the least common denominator of what holiness is. And it's kind of like anything else in our lives. If we don't exercise in a, in a way, I'm not just talking physically, but mentally, then our mind always goes back to the least common thing that we have exercised in the past. Um, for instance, how many of you remember every theorem that you learned in high school geometry? Right? Now, why do you not remember those? Because you've never used it. Yes, that is exactly right. That's what every student who ever takes geometry says. When am I ever going to use this, right? Now, Brent, sometimes they use them, don't they? Sometimes they actually use them in real life. But they go back to this least common thing, and, and maybe you've gone outside, and you've worked in the yard, and you came in the next day, and your body was sore. Now, why is your body sore the next day? Because you don't normally use those things. Now, when our purity is brought up and our holiness is brought up, sometimes we get sore about that. Because it gets exercised and then we're upset because it hurts a little bit. Right? And instead of continuing with it, we sometimes go back to where we were before. We don't continue with that type of thought process. Many people in January will start a new exercise program. And they'll go to the gym maybe on January 1st, January 2nd, and they'll do the weights and they'll do the treadmill and do whatever. And the next day they're sore. I don't feel good physically. And, and because of that, some people by the second or third day of the year say, this exercise stuff is too hard for me. I just don't think I'm going to do it this year. Maybe next year, right? And they say that every year. And so they've never done it. But that's a lot of times what we do with our purity, with our holiness. We set it off until another event. And so he says to them, I have written to you because I want to stir up your pure minds. I want to stir it up. That ye may be mindful of the words. It has to be reminded. It has to be brought up again and again and again. It has to be exercised. Because if we don't exercise, if we don't gird up the loins of our purity, nobody's going to do it for us. Society is not getting purer by the year. Have you noticed that? Society is becoming more impure all the time. Things are running down in society. And for us to stop that trend in our own lives... It has to be deliberate. We have to stir it up. We have to make it happen. We look at the end of verse number 2 now in 2 Peter 3. Look what he says. There's 
categories here. He says, which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and the Savior. Now you think back, I try to go to what he's referring to here, and, and here's what you'd come up with. And your notes refer to it. The materials that we use for this exercise toward purity are the Old Testament of the prophets and the New Testament of the apostles. So this is common sense. Your mom maybe wrote this in your Bible when you were a kid. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So what we have to exercise is our knowledge and our application of the Scripture. And if we don't exercise our knowledge and application of the Scripture, it is impossible to have purity that will be examined by sunlight. It'll be a phony sincerity. It'll be a phony purity that will be exposed as being phony. It won't be real. Don't you love how people often act like they're an authority on the Scriptures? But when you ask them about it, they don't know anything about it. Maybe it's your uncle or your brother-in-law at Thanksgiving who knows you're a Christian and he's always trying to kind of jab you a little bit. Doesn't the Bible have all kinds of errors in it? Right? And it just makes you want to speak to that person with God's love. And you may say to him, yeah, could go ahead and show me, uh, Uncle Fillmore, can you show me one of the errors? And well, I don't know where they're at, I just know there's a lot of them. Well, like, which one are you talking about? Well, there's just a ton of them, right? It's always this general speaking. Yeah, these people are authorities on the Word of God, but they've never read it. And you ask sometimes kids, these teenagers, who are, are now sold this bill of goods by society, that the Bible is just a book that was written by men, and it's just there to try to rein people in, and it's just there to, you know, take away everybody's fun, and they've never read it, not one time. And when you read the Word of God, it'll change your life. When you read the Word of God, it'll stir up the things in your heart that need purifying. So that's what Peter's talking about here. Now, the opposite of this is talked about in verse number three. <coughs> Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. Now, the last days are not just 2015. The last days were A.D. 65 and 66. Peter is writing these words under the threat of Nero. The last days had already come in Rome as Nero had blamed the Christians as he burned down the city and stood on the top of the palace and watched it burn because he wanted that portion of the city gone so that he could plant an orchard. And when he blamed it on the Christians, he was trying to stir the people up to go and execute Christians all over the empire. And they did. They used their heads for lampposts in the regime there in Rome. And we think of the last days, because of how our minds work, 
we always think about the day in which we live. Right? But read a little bit about the Dark Ages. There's a reason why they were called the Dark Ages. Because millions upon millions of believers were martyred for their faith. Who were they martyred by? By scoffers. Some were irreligious scoffers, and many of them were religious scoffers. Who were the people who murdered or put Jesus on the cross? Well, all of our sin did, but specifically, who were they? The religious scoffers of the day. So when we think of scoffers, we're not just thinking about agnostics and atheists. We're also thinking about religious scoffers. We said this in your notes. Scoffers do their best to have personal pleasure as the only law they live by. They deliberately cast off all restraints. And this is part of the dogma of secular humanism. If it feels good, do it. If everybody else is doing it, do it. Even if nobody's doing it and you feel like doing it, do it. Secular humanism is being sold to our society constantly and is being led by scoffers because scoffers walk after their own lusts. Scoffers also have some language that they use. And here's the language that he brought up in verse number four. Where is the promise of his coming? He's talking about Jesus coming back. Paul had already talked to the saints about Jesus coming back. Paul had explained thoroughly to the church at Thessalonica that Jesus hadn't already come back yet. And that those who were asleep in Christ would be raised on the last day. But they were asking this question, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. Now, if you look at just that phrase, all things continue as they were, that is a scientific term. And it's talking about the fact that everything is going to stay the same. Unless global warming does us all in. Everything's just going to stay the same. <laughs> These are scientific laws. And scientific laws cannot be broken, except by scientists who are trying to prove that global warming is going to destroy... Anyway, I'm, I'm really confused by it all. Scientific laws are given to us by God. There's never any human being that has ever come up with a scientific law. All he's done is discovered the scientific law. God's the one who gave us these scientific laws. And by the way, God's the only one who can break scientific laws because he's the one who made them and so you begin to think about these scoffers let's talk about them a little bit the scoffers of the last days have the same attitude brought up by peter here as those who lived before the great flood things won't ever change now you picture noah on this for a while Noah is 600 years old. You think you have sore knees. Noah is 600 years old, and he's still a young man, by the way. Right? Still, he's like somebody would be 55 now, 55 or 60, still a young man. He's got three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Uh, he, he's living in a day much like the last days where there were 
scoffers. Nobody wanted to believe in the one true God. The whole line of Cain had gone away from God. We don't know how many people were on the planet, but there were likely thousands by this time. And so God came to Noah and he said, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And Noah had to ask, what is an ark? Because nobody had ever built one before. Right? Things were the same. And, and many creation scientists believe that there was a canopy in the firmament. And that's, there was no ultra, ultraviolet rays coming through. That's why people were so old. And that's how the plants didn't need rain. They had the dew every day. And the moisture was just prevalent on the earth. But God told Noah, build an ark. He told him exactly how big to build it. And he said, there's a flood coming, and I'm going to destroy the earth. Now, Noah went out and began to build the ark. And most Bible historians say that it took him between 95 and 120 years. Right? Pretty long. I don't think any of us have ever invested that much time in something. That's pretty safe to say. 95 to 120 years, he builds the ark. He stands every day and he preaches, the flood's coming. <laughs> Repent, get on the ark, the flood's coming. And what did the scoffers do? They just let him have it. I mean, they wrote op-eds about him in the New York Times. They talked about what a fool Noah was. They just ridiculed him up and down. And scientifically, they said, Noah, you don't know anything. Everything's going to stay the same as it's always been. It's always been this way. Ever since we've ever been on the planet, the planet's always done it this way, and it's going to keep doing it this way. And I bet there were a lot of them who thought that they had just somehow evolved or happened to be on the planet. Because that was a lie sold by Satan very early on. And so in Noah's days, you have these scoffers. Now, the reason why I bring it up is because Peter brings it up in the passage. He says that the scoffers were there as they were from the beginning of creation, before the flood. And they're saying nothing's ever going to change. And so that's what we say in your notes. Things won't ever change. Now, one day, you remember from the scripture, things did change. It began to rain for the first time in human history. The fountains of the deep were broken up. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's just incredible, the scope of the flood and how massive it was. And some people have different ideas on how that flood took place. But if you believe Scripture, you know that it was a worldwide drastic flood. Great deluge might be called. So let's continue now in verse number five, because it says, for this, they willingly are ignorant of. That's a very important phrase in this study. For this, they are willingly ignorant of. You know, there are people who are willingly ignorant of some things, right? And you look at it and you say, are you really you don't want to use the word stupid, but you sometimes are you really do you really think this is true? And sometimes it's it's with your kids, sometimes it's with 
politicians or whoever it is, do you, do you really think that, that we're going to fall for this? Paris was attacked. Was it Friday that all that happened? The day before, the President of the United States said that we have ISIS contained. We have ISIL contained. Now, I would submit to you that he is deliberately ignorant of this. All right? He's not, he's not a dummy. He is deliberately saying these things that we've got it figured out, we've got it contained, because it goes against what his worldview is. And that's what scoffers do in relation to God and His Word. For this they willingly are ignorant of, and here's the key, that by the Word of God, the heavens were of old. That is the point that the scoffers do not want to relent on. Is that by the Word of God, it all happens. Psalm 33 says, By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. And we know that God made everything out of nothing instantaneously according to His Word. And yet scoffers are going to buy into that. We said in your notes, contrary to what some might think, not all scoffers are atheists. Many believe in a God that is not the God of the Bible. So there are a lot of religious scoffers. And they also are deliberately ignorant. Pew Research does polls and and forums every year in the Christian world. And they've recently uh, seen that our society here in the United States has gone down in belief in God or a God 7% since their last poll. And you know that only 47% of people who call themselves Christians believe that God created the world with a six-day creation. I want to just think about this again. Only 47% of people who are self-proclaimed Christians said they believe that God created the world. Does that seem to be a problem? Does that seem to be a crisis in your faith? What it really means is there are a lot of religious scoffers. There are a lot of religious people who go to churches and who are part of denominations who don't really believe in the God who created the heaven and the earth and the God who managed and processed the entire flood. And so there are a lot of scoffers in those circles. Now, in your notes, those who close their eyes to the evidence of creation and their hearts to the history of the flood do so deliberately. And God has spoken about this again and again. That those who say that they don't know that there is a God or who say that there is no God, God actually calls them fools. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Romans 1 said that all people have the evidence of creation. It's empirical. Every one of us have it, even inside of our own bodies. We know that there's a creator. That the entire scope of creation can be understood without ever opening the Bible. And yet, scoffers want to navigate their way around this. I've noticed that these last couple of weeks, as 
as uh, the news media and, and even the uh, political machine uh, of, of Washington has tried to take down Dr. Ben Carson. I, I don't know everything about Dr. Carson. I don't know if I would vote for Dr. Carson. I do know that he's a conservative, that he claims to be a Christian. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. But you know what they picked on him for, along with some things that they tried to make up about his bio, um, some things that the news media themselves totally misrepresented, especially as a site called Politico. But here's one of the things they, they made fun of him about. It's been in the mainstream media. They said, Dr. Carson once said that he thought that the biblical character Joseph made the pyramids to store grain. And they just think that's so hilarious. How in the world could any thinking person on the planet Earth have that idea? Now, it, it isn't amazing that that's the big beef they have with Dr. Ben Carson? That a guy who lived over 3,000 years ago, whether or not he built pyramids to store grain or not, that's the big deal. What's going on? On the other side of the coin, not to disparage the candidates who, who debated last night to such a massive TV audience. The Democrats had a debate last night. I don't know if you guys knew. Um, not to disparage them, but one of them has repeatedly lied to Congress and nobody's picked up on it. One of them has repeatedly misrepresented herself about emails at a server that wasn't supposed to be there at her house in a restroom. I, I don't know how it all works. But Ben Carson thinks that Joseph may have built the pyramids. And it's a big problem. Now, do you understand how scoffers work? Scoffers try to build an entire thing around one little nugget in there. I don't think that Joseph built the pyramids, but I also don't think it's far-fetched that he did. He had to store seven years of grain somewhere. Right? I don't think that's far-fetched. And even if Dr. Ben Carson subscribed to what most liberals believe, that aliens built the pyramids... I still don't think that the whole pyramid issue would have anything to do with politics in 2015. And yet that's the big thing that they pull from his bio. Right? Pulling all these things from 50 years ago. This thing with the pyramids. That's what scoffers do. And they do it deliberately. And now they do this with creation and they also do it with the flood. If you are trying to live your life in America today... And you say one of four things, you will immediately be branded as against society, far-fetched, far out, and you're just crazy. One is that you believe marriage is between man and a woman, as defined and described by God and his word. One is that you believe babies are human beings at the moment of conception. Right? And then you get into the, the other ones that you believe that God actually created the earth and that you believe that there was a worldwide flood. Now, if you want to be mocked by society, just do all four of those things at once. And they will act like you are an alien. Now, that's all it takes. We don't live in a majority Christian nation. I don't care what any poll says anymore. We're the minority, folks. And we've got to understand that we live in the last days where the scoffers 
deliberately go against God. Their worldview has to navigate around God for it to work. And so they're going against our God. And they say the heavens weren't really created by God. The flood never really happened. And they do it deliberately. Now, I want you to look at verse number 6. It says, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. That just gives it as a fact. Look over at Hebrews chapter 11. Interesting verbiage here as well. Hebrews 11, verse number 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. We said this in your notes. Scripture never attempts to prove creation and the flood in a scientific way. They are always given as established facts. Beginning with the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. It's just a fact. In the beginning, God created. It's just a fact. It's never an attempt to prove anything. By the way, if you read in Isaiah and Jeremiah, you you see great proofs of this as God spoke to the prophets. God never has to prove anything to us. You don't have to prove anything to us. It'd be like if I had an argument with my two-year-old about whether or not I'm her dad. Right? Because she definitely could have that argument. She has the intellect where she may just walk up to me and say, you're not my dad. And what are you going to do with that? Are you just going to stand there and say, let me prove to you I'm your dad? Little two-year-old, come here, and I want to show you your birth certificate. And let's go and do a DNA test. Do you know what DNA is, Sophie? Let me explain that to you. That's how God would have to do with us, right? God is so far beyond us that He has to present this as an established fact because we don't have any recognition of what it would take to be the supreme being who would spew the earth out of your mouth in a second. (coughs) We don't even understand what that means. And so God just says, yeah, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And yet there are two-year-olds who shake their fist and say, I don't believe there's a God. When in their hearts, they know there indeed is. And that's why the curse words that come out of their mouth invoke his name. That's why when they want to say something derogatory and mean, that they invoke his name and who he is. Because they really do believe him. They do know who he is. And so this is given as a fact. (laughs) Verse number 7, touch on it a little bit, and then we touch on it more toward the end of this chapter. Verse number 10 and 11. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what it's giving now is an analogy. It's saying, listen, just like the people who before the flood said, there's no flood coming, things are always going to be as they were. (laughs) And even when it began to rain, they still had some disbelief. And they still scoffed at who Noah was as he invited them to come on the ark. 
Well, we said this in the notes. The coming reservation, using the Bible's word there, reserved. The coming reservation of fire on this planet is just as certain as the events that have already taken place. So, what, what this basically tells us, just to lay it out there for you, the earth is going to be dissolved by fire, whether or not we believe it's ever going to be dissolved by fire. That's what it's saying. It's saying the flood was going to happen whether that crew of scoffers believed it or not. The earth was created whether any university professor believed it or not. God is who he is, and what he says will happen no matter how much or to what degree we buy in. And that's verses 1 through 7. But it, it starts with stirring up pure minds. And stirring up pure minds happens with the Word of God and being in the Word of God. Let's stand. We'll be dismissed in a closing word tonight. Great to see you all. Pray for each other throughout this week and be in the Scripture. Father, thank you for your word and the way it stirs our hearts. I pray that you would help us to have a biblical worldview as we live this week and to make decisions guided by your word and by your spirit, not by our culture, not by our intellect, not by our experience, but by our God. I pray that you would help us to continue to lovingly confront the issues in our society that are taking place and help us to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community this week. We ask these things in your name. Amen. God bless you. You're dispensed.